Open mine eyes that I may see Glimpses of truth thou hast for me Open mine eyes, illumine me Spirit divine Love of my life, I am crying I am not dying, I am dancing Dancing along in the madness There is no sadness like to invite you to a soul-level encounter. Music has an incredible ability to proclaim the soul's language beyond what mere words can speak. That's what we seek as we invite our guests to share their song of the soul. You will hear the music that has charted the steps of their spiritual journey, that has provided a touchstone in the soul's dark night and sung the heart's awe and joy when come to the light. Over the next hour, you will be a witness and companion to our guest's spiritual path and sacred testimony. Welcome to Song of the Soul. Another magnificent treat today for Song of the Soul. We'll be joined this week and next week as well by Howard Shalowitz. Howard is a Jewish Hazan. In English, we'd say he's a cantor. And you'll be charmed by the depth and breadth of his knowledge of Jewish music, not to mention the music he knows and has done beyond the Jewish circles. He's had roles in operettas, performed with the New Orleans Symphony, with the Penn Singers and the Gilbert and Sullivan Players in Philadelphia. Howard has served as Hazan for a number of synagogues across the country, including the prestigious Sutton Place Synagogue in New York City. I actually met him in his role with the Ambassadors Program for the Cantor's Assembly, where he travels across the USA and beyond, performing and speaking on Jewish music. Howard Shalowitz joins us today by phone from St. Louis, Missouri. Howard, I'm so pleased to have you here for Song of the Soul. Well, thank you for asking me to be on. I ran into you when you were in Eau Claire because you were presenting a program here at Temple Shalom Synagogue, Jewish Music in America. And this is something that I think you share around the globe here, or at least throughout the United States. Can you talk about some of these programs that you provide and how this is arranged? Sure. This is part of the Cantor's Assembly's Ambassador Program. They're geared for synagogues that don't have a cantor, and many don't have a rabbi. Uh, They're smaller congregations throughout the United States and Canada. Although I'm willing to travel almost anywhere in the world, if they have a a synagogue that qualifies, 
And we go there. It's absolutely free of charge. I, I don't charge anything for my services. They just reimburse for expenses coming and going, basically. And whatever needs the synagogue may have, I try to fill those needs. So if it's a service they want a Friday night and Saturday morning for Shabbat or Sabbath services, then I conduct those. If it's a lecture on Jewish music, and there are a lot of lectures to choose from, I'll do that. If it's a training class for some of the lay leadership of the congregation so that when I'm gone, they could continue to lead services in the proper nusach or the proper mode of prayer for that particular service. I'll teach that. It's really whatever the needs of the congregation might be. And Eau Claire, Wisconsin was the most recent one that I went on an ambassador visit. Some of them have included all the way from Bangor, Maine, as far southeast as San Juan, Puerto Rico, and as far west as Honolulu, Hawaii. I recall that when you were here, it was just, I think maybe it was your first outing after the birth of your son. Was that right? Right. My son was born in March. We knew he was scheduled sometime in March. He was born March 7th. And I had scheduled this visit in, I believe it was early June, not knowing that I would be so sleep deprived when I got there. But it went very well. And my wife was nice enough to let me out of the house for a couple days. But Despite the waking up in the middle of the night several times, I still missed him tremendously for the two days that I was gone. And in addition to being a parent and to being a cantor and providing this wealth of music to the nation, you're also an attorney. How do these all fit together? Well, you know, it's funny because when people say, how do you reconcile being a lawyer on the one hand and being a cantor, you know, a Jewish clergyman on the other? And jokingly, I say, well, one of them involves a profession that you hear people bickering and arguing and yelling about the most, the smallest minutia and the most trivial things, and the other one, I'm a lawyer. So that always gets a little bit of a chuckle. But really, I'm doing the same thing in both professions, and that is that you're pleading your case to God as a cantor, as a representative of the congregation in prayer, and as a lawyer, you're pleading your case to a judge or a jury. And you hope that the outcome will be on your side in both cases, especially. But it's really the same type of profession in that respect that you're, as a cantor, you have to be prepared not only mentally and physically, but vocally as well, especially on the high holidays in Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. But really, every time you get up to pray on behalf of the congregation, you're their representative. And it's the same thing in court. You have to be prepared there and be prepared before the judge and the jury. You've got a wealth of music that you covered uh, for the short period that I saw you when you were here in Eau Claire. You covered some of the popular music that's from Jewish origins, if you will. The one that stunned me, I think you said, what was it, White Christmas or... Right, Irving Berlin, yeah. There are many, many songs, secular songs, were written by great Jewish composers. For instance, George Gershwin, when he wrote for Porgy and Bess, it ain't necessarily so. There's a blessing before you get called up to the uh, Torah for an, what's called an aliyah, and it goes, Baruch Hu et Hashem And it's exactly in the same mode and the same feeling that it ain't necessarily so is taken from. So throughout history, really, there's been much borrowing from the secular music of countries that the Jews have used in the liturgy, as well as Jewish music that has been borrowed into secular music and also into church music. The famous story is a Jewish song at the end of the service, usually sung on Friday nights at the end of Shabbat services. 
there was a Wesleyan minister who came in and heard it and composed a prayer, the God of Abraham prays. And if you look in some of the hymnals now in various churches, you'll find that song that was based on a Jewish song. It was to Jewish liturgy. Yeah, it's great, the intricacies and the the borrowing and sharing in both directions. You might as well get us started for your Song of the Soul. What's number one on your list? First one I chose was a song that was taken from our liturgy, actually, from the prayer when we put away the Torah in the what's called the Aron Kodesh, the Ark. And it's done, obviously, on any day that the Torah is read, but it's especially done on the Shabbat, on the Sabbath, on the High Holy Days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and on the three festivals of Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And the end line is, Hashivenu Adonai Elecha Venashuva, Chadesh Amenu Kiked. And we ask God that we should return to thee, O Lord, and you shall return our days to our days as of old. And this particular piece you'll hear is a choral piece written by a choir director of the 19th century in Berlin, by the name of Louis Lewandowski. Lewandowski wrote many, many pieces that are still being used today throughout the world, especially in the United States, because the second wave of immigration into the United States of Jews were those of German Jews between the late 1840s or 1850 and about 1890. And that was the second biggest wave of Jewish immigration. And they brought with them the melodies they knew from their synagogues. And among those was this melody to Hashi Venu by Louis Lewandowski. Hashivenu, obviously choral music that we're hearing there, and it's part of Howard Shalowitz's Song of the Soul today. It's not that he did that, although I suppose that's one that you sing from time to time, Howard? Actually, I do. I introduced it to a the local yeshiva, the Jewish high school here in St. Louis, on weekdays, even though traditionally it's not done on weekdays only because it's a faster prayer service but I wanted to introduce something to the students there that they may have never heard before. Now it's just become tradition that that's what they sing at the end of every Torah service. One thing that I noted about that one, it could have been, from my point of view, I I was raised Roman Catholic, 
it could have been for me part of the music that you'd hear in a church like that. It, it's very similar. Does this come out of the Reformed tradition that was, uh, I guess, maybe closer to the Protestant services, whatever that we, we've known, or is, does it go back further than that? Many times people will think that synagogue music sounds like church music, and it's actually the other way around, that church music came from synagogue music. In the time of the holy temples, the first one was destroyed in the year 586 BCE, the second one in the year 70 CE. There were temple services that all had music. The Levites, the Levium, were the ones who sang the psalms and other prayers during the service, as well as synagogues. And there was always some sort of chant and choral music that even predated Gregorian chant. So there was, again, this borrowing that the church borrowed from the synagogue aspect of having a leader or a cantor, and also the choir. Now, these days, there are way fewer synagogues than there are churches in the world, obviously, and the percentage of churches that have choirs and the percentage of synagogues that have choirs, the churches have way more choirs than the synagogues. So people in modern times think that if you have a choir during a religious service, that's more church-like than synagogue-like, when in fact the opposite is true. But it does resemble church music of the 19th century, and it does have also an aspect, uh, a little bit of the romantic music of the 19th century, like opera, like an operatic choral piece, which actually you're going to hear a little bit in the next piece that we hear, the Bavur David, again from the Torah service. The Bavur David, the very end of it, is exactly the same liturgy that we just heard, the Hashivenu Adonai Lecha, but it was written by a uh, cantor in the early 1920s by the name of David Reutemann. It's a beautiful cantor and choir piece. It's a cantor with the choir. It's the same words at the very end, only you'll notice at the end of this piece, if you like Pagliacci, it almost sounds a little bit like Pagliacci at the end, where he says, which is like, and then he goes into Kekedem at the end, he hits a nice high note, and the cantor is Cantor Yitzchak Mayer Helfgott of the Parkey Synagogue in New York, and then it goes into which is the Israeli National Anthem, or the Hatikvah. So here you have exactly the same words at the very end that we just heard before, a different musical setting, that combines a little bit of opera with Pagliacci, a few notes, and at the very end combines it with the Hatikva or the Israeli National Anthem.
David by Cantor Yitzhak Meir Hefgat, and they, please forgive me if my Yiddish and Hebrew and everything is not quite up to snuff. It does interest me, and because I'm really rather passionate about Israeli dance, I probably can pronounce and understand a few more words than most people from the U.S. who are not Jewish. Do you do any dancing, Israeli dancing? I mean, I've had the local synagogue here bring me in to teach Israeli dance because it happens to be my long suit. Well, I have a, a deal, and that is I'll teach the singing, but I'm not going to teach the dancing. In fact, when I was in the Penn Glee Club, it's not just standing up on risers. It was a singing, dancing, acting show that we literally traveled around the world. We were in Denmark. We were in Germany. But when the singing took place, I was in the front a lot of times as a soloist. When the dancing took place, I was in the back. So that might answer your question. <laughs> And that's not just a personal hesitation? It, it is a, a real statement on your ability, or is it just pleasure? No, I, I Israeli. I, I've done Israeli dance. And I just, dancing, if I were to rate myself 1 to 10, I'd put myself about a 5. So I'm not terrible, I'm not great, and I would rather leave it up to the professionals. Well, it's really a great gift that Israel has given to the world in terms of culture. Not all of us can learn Hebrew, but almost everyone knows at least a couple Jewish dances, Hebrew dances. Well, I did dance the Hora at our wedding, obviously. Well, congratulations. <laughs> and I danced the bottle dance from Fiddler on the Roof. I danced that at someone's wedding once, too. <laughs> Performed it with the bottle on my head kind of thing. Very nice. Well, give us some more music. Let's keep going. You've got a full plate here. The next is a selection, speaking of, of weddings. It's called the Sheva Brachot. It means the seven blessings. Traditionally, at a Jewish wedding, the seven blessings are recited by a cantor. We were fortunate at, at our wedding to have cantor Simon Spiro of Toronto, Canada. He came in for the wedding, and we had a choir made up of cantors as well, and we had a string quartet all playing and singing during the uh, Sheva Brachot. This is a little snippet of the last part of the seven blessings. I think it's the seventh blessing that I that we're going to hear from the wedding service. In fact, this is from our wedding of June 13, 2010.
recorded during Howard Shalowitz's wedding back just, what, a year ago. I believe the name is Sheva Brakot. So we just heard a little bit about it. Obviously, what, what was the building like? It sounds big and cathedral-like from the tone of the music. It's called, now it's called the 560 Music Center in University City, Missouri, right at the suburb of St. Louis. And it used to be, the it's part of Washington University, but it used to be Share Emmet, which was a reform synagogue located in University City. They moved west, as did many synagogues. Now it's just this big, beautiful, what was the sanctuary, a big concert hall. And the acoustics there are magnificent, and the windows and the whole ambiance of the now auditorium or concert hall is just magnificent. But you can imagine the days when it was a synagogue and just this glorious domed structure with the natural acoustics. Unfortunately, today, Many synagogues are built with acoustics not in mind or it's the last thing they have in mind, when in fact it probably should be one of the first things they have in mind so that voices can carry and they can actually hear beautiful music during the service. That is some beautiful music from your wedding. I wanted to mention something about the previous song, the Bavur David. You mentioned it's kind of operatic. There's something I ran into on your website that gave me a chuckle. It mentioned that amongst your great accomplishments in life is that at one point you delivered a singing telegram to Pavarotti. How did that come about, and how could you not have been scared out of your boots singing to this great artist? Well, to answer the second question, how was I not scared, that's an easy answer, and the answer is I was young. (laughs) I think as we get older, we start to revere things and fear things more, and I was 19 years old. What happened was I worked for a singing telegram company during my summer vacations while I was in college and in the Chicago area where I grew up. And I remember I was away at school. I received a phone call in early November, and the singing telegram company said, can you stay around the Sunday after Thanksgiving? I said, no, I have to go back because I have a paper due the next day on Monday. And they said, no, I think this is a singing telegram you're going to want to do. I said, well, he said, he's from out of town, he's from Italy, he's an opera singer. I said, is he from Modena, Italy? And they said, yes. I said, is he larger than life? They said, yes. I said, I'm going to ask my professor if I can get an extra day on the paper. And he was very nice. He said, if you show me the plane ticket that you're coming back on Monday, I'll let you hand it in Tuesday. And I said, would you like a copy of a picture just to prove that I sang the Pavarotti? He said, I don't think anybody would ever make up that kind of story. So I do actually have an autographed picture of Pavarotti, of my singing to him in 1980, right after, there was a Sunday after Thanksgiving up in Highwood, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago, and it was a singing telegram to the tune of Feniculi Fenicula. That is only too good. <laughs> well, congratulations. I guess it's been downhill since then, except then you got married and had a kid, and then it went back uphill. Right, exactly. It's funny because... With all of the things I've done in my life, that when people see that in a, uh, a biography, that's the one thing they pull out and then they ask me about and don't really care. All the rest is just, 
It was trivial, but it was. It's an exciting moment, and it was an exciting moment. My parents were there. They said, if you're doing a singing telegram, we're going to drive you there because we want to see this. So they also had a lot of joy watching the singing telegram and hearing the singing telegram to Pavarotti. Well, congratulations on that, but even more so, and I do know, I was in the Peace Corps at one point, and after that there were these ads that say, you know, Peace Corps, the toughest job you'll ever love. And then I had my son, and that changed for me. The toughest job I ever loved was parenting, and that, that's truly the deepest love. So I think you've got a triple header there between Pavarate and getting married and having your son. So congratulations, and Lahaim and all of that. Thank you, thank you. Give us more music. Okay, a big change from what we just heard. The next one is called Cuando el Rey Nimrod. It's a song that is in the language called Ladino. And Ladino is mostly a mixture of Spanish and Hebrew. Although there is some throw-in of Arabic and Turkish and Greek and maybe a little French here and there. But for the most part, Ladino was the language, still is the language, the vernacular, spoken language of Sephardic Jews. That is, those Jews who came from Spain, Morocco, Northern Africa, Middle East, they spoke this language called Ladino, and the songs, for the most part, are all secular songs. There aren't really prayers in Ladino. Ladino was, as we'll get to in a little bit, kind of the Sephardic version of Yiddish, which was for the Eastern European Jews. But for now, this song, Quando El Rey Nimrod, talks about in the days of King Nimrod, they uh, went out into the fields and they saw a star shining brightly that Abraham, our father, was about to be born. Abraham, our father, our blessed father, light of Israel, etc. And you'll notice there's some Hebrew words in there as well, obviously, but it's mostly ancient Castilian Spanish because Ladino dates back hundreds and hundreds of thousand years to a point of the time that the Jews settled in, in Spain and Portugal it's uh, a lot older, obviously, than the Yiddish language, which we'll hear in another song. But you'll notice the theme that I just said about Quando el Rey Nimrod in the time of King Nimrod. And there was a king, and Abraham, our father, was about to be born. And we looked up, and we saw a holy light in the sky. It sounds almost like, like a Christmas carol, especially the, the Christmas song, O Holy Night, which is a gorgeous song. This is the Ladino version of that, although this, obviously Ladino, because these songs are hundreds and hundreds of years old, predate the Christmas carols that we have now. So again, there was a lot of borrowing of themes, of music, of language between and among different cultures, nationalities, and religions. And again, this is called Cuando el Rey Nimrod, in the time or in the days of King Nimrod.
miraba, miraba en el cielo y en la estrellería. Vido, vido luz santa en la judería que había, que había de nacer Abraham Avinu. Abraham, Abraham Avinu, Padre, Padre querido, Padre, Padre bendito, luz de Israel. Compadre, al compadre y también al Moel, que por su, por su zehut, nos venga el Goel. Abraham, Abraham Avinu, Padre, Padre querido, Padre, Padre bendito, luz de El Rey Nimrod. I believe that version is Marla Barugel. Did I get that right? I should have mentioned that for Marla Barugel. Marla actually was a classmate of mine at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. Part that we didn't play from that one included the intro music, something that sounds like an oud to me, which is a Middle Eastern stringed instrument. So much of the sound in there, even though I can pick out the Spanish influence, it sounds really a Middle Eastern in many ways. When the Jews left Spain, did mostly did they go down into Africa and across to the Middle East? You know, they, they dispersed into different lands. They did go into Africa and to Tunisia, Morocco, uh, of course, because Morocco is right across the Straits of Gibraltar. They went back into the Middle East of those who were there, traveled actually back and forth. But the Inquisition in 1492, the Jews were kicked out and they left. But the Jews who went west settled in Brazil and they settled in the northeast part of Brazil in Fortaleza and Recife, especially Recife, because in 1654, there were 23 Jews who left Recife because, don't forget, Brazil in 1492 in the 1500s, early 1600s, was under Dutch rule, and the Dutch were very good to the Jews. But what happened in uh, about 1650 or so was Spain came back and Portugal came back, they kicked the Jews out again, and it wasn't such a great time for the Jews in 1654, so they left, and they went north. They ended up in some of the Caribbean islands, St. Eustatius, Aruba, they're in St. Thomas. They went to different places, but uh, the 23 Jews who set sail then 
ended up in a place called New Amsterdam, which is now we know as New York. And those were the first settlers in North America who later on expanded. And that was a different topic, a lecture, the history of Jewish music in America, Plymouth Rock, the rock and roll. And that was actually the first wave of immigrants to the United States, or what predated the United States, from 1654 till about, oh, 1850. It was all Sephardic Jews. And they brought with them Sephardic music, Sephardic customs. And it wasn't really till about 200 years later that German Jews came over. And with the influence of German Jews, rabbis started speaking during services because the tradition was that a rabbi would speak during Sabbath services or any service during the year only twice a year. And that would be the Sabbath before Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the Sabbath before Passover as the um, what's called Shabbat Hagadol, or the big or great Shabbat or Sabbath, to tell of the different laws of Passover. So with the German Jews who came over, they saw that in the church that the pastor or minister or priest was speaking every Sunday and giving a homily every Sunday. So too did the German Jews want to continue that tradition, and they had a rabbi come in and speak every Sabbath. But the tradition was before that, for a couple hundred years, that there's no such thing as a rabbi of a synagogue. A rabbi was teaching in the community and interpreting Jewish law, and you go to services to pray, not to hear someone speak. There's so much we have to learn. And there's so little that we get in the history classes that I grew up with and church history, being raised Catholic. I am Quaker now, so I think it's broadened some of my education. But that whole extremely shameful period of the Inquisition and how the Jews, who I think at one point were fairly numerous in Spain, were driven out. And so I guess that the loss of the Moors, the Muslims that ruled Spain for an extended period, they were very tolerant, I think, and accepting of the Jews, the people of the book. Oh, absolutely. In fact, during the time of the Phoenician exploration, which was the first settlement of the Jews in the first millennium BCE already, the three great religions of the world, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, all got along well. In fact, Jews were allowed to own land. They were allowed to have their own businesses. They were allowed to have their own little governing cities that were ruled by Jewish law. Everybody respected everyone else, and the Muslims and the Jews got along great. It was unfortunately under Ferdinand and Isabella that the Jews were expelled in 1492 because they wanted everybody to be Christian. A dark time for our history. And you know, something that's kind of interesting to me is I have not heard a lot of music, Jewish music or, you know, Israeli music, that sounds bitter. And there's there's reason to have bitterness. The pogroms in the East and Inquisition in the West and many more sufferings, what happened, you know, during World War II and Hitler. All of this, the music does not carry bitterness from my point of view. Well, some of it, it depends on which part of Jewish music, because you could spend, obviously, years and decades on Jewish music. The aspects of the sweatshops, when the third wave of immigrants came over between 1880 and 1930, those were the Polish Jews, those of Eastern Europe. And when they came over, there were many, many songs written for Jewish theater, art songs, Jewish opera by various composers. There was Goldfaden, Elstein, Tomaszewski, which actually is an ancestor to um, Michael Tilson Thomas. He got his name from Tomaszewski. All of these songs that were written reflected the time. Some of them were very joyous, 
and other ones were very, very sad, dealing with sweatshops, dealing with downtrodden times, dealing with immigrants who came over and their ship was turned away, like the St. Louis ship was. And many of the Yiddish songs were very sad. A song called Papa Rosen, which is a little child selling peddling cigarettes, saying, please buy my cigarettes so I can just have a few cents to feed myself tonight. I mean, just terrible songs. There was a song called My Yingela, My Little One. It says, If Choba Kleinem Yingela, Zunala Gorfine, I have a little child, a little son so fine, so sweet. And when I look into his eyes, I think the whole world is mine. But when I leave in the morning, he's asleep. And when I come back from work, he's asleep again. And his father never got to even spend time with his child because he was working, you know, 18 hours a day, every day. So some of these songs were just heart-wrenching songs, tearing you apart about a letter from mother in the old country, please write me a letter, one called Abrivala Der Mamen. You know, please write your mother, I'm waiting to hear news, you know, from the new world. So the songs of the prayer book, the liturgy, some of them are very happy and joyous, depending on what they are. One of them is the next song you'll hear, which is Oseh Shalom Bim Romav which is a song from the uh, Hasidic Song Festival in 1969. Very joyous song. It's from our liturgy. We say it at the end of the silent devotion, or the what's called the Amidah. Oseh Shalom B'Ramav, this was written by Nurit Hirsch, one of the great female Jewish composers of our time. I would say Naomi Shemer probably would be number one, and Nurit Hirsch would be a close second. This is actually Nurit Hirsch singing the song, that won the Hasidic Song Festival in 1969. Shalom Aleinu ve'al kol Yisrael 
ZANG because this is a Northern Spirit Radio production. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, your host. We do two programs. One is this one, Song of the Soul, and also Spirit in Action. On our website, you'll find links to our guests, helpful information about them, and you can also please drop off comments when you visit. We love to hear from you. We're speaking today with Howard Shalowitz. I saw him doing a presentation on Jewish music in America when he was here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. He's located down by St. Louis, Missouri, though I think you're Chicago-raised, right, Howard? Right. Chicago boy, but I'm down here in St. Louis, so I've converted from Cubs fan to Cardinals fan. Was it a hard conversion process? Extremely difficult. <laughs> I couldn't go to a Cardinals game because how was I going to root for a team that I, I wasn't a, of which I wasn't a fan? And the Cubs were actually doing well when I first moved down here in the 1980s, but I've, I think I've come full circle. However, if the Cubs do make it to a World Series, I will be there with my Cubs hat on because my grandfather never saw them win one. My father never saw them win one. I hope I could see the Cubs win one World Series in my lifetime, which actually leads me to the next song, which is Zolshoin Kumen Digeula, which is a song of hope for the Messiah. <laughs> And salvation, because it might only be in the day the Messiah comes that the Cubs will win the World Series. But the song, actually, Zolshoin Kumadugaula, is in contrast, total contrast, to the one we had heard two songs ago, Kwando Rad, which was Ladino. This song actually is in Yiddish. Yiddish is mostly a combination of Hebrew and German, as opposed to Ladino, which is Hebrew and Spanish. Although Yiddish does have some words in English words in it, Polish words, Russian words. If you understand Yiddish, you might understand German. You could kind of fake your way through it because there is so much similarity between the German and the Yiddish. Although some of the exact same words in Yiddish do not mean the same thing they do in German. So there are many Hebrew words as well that you'll always hear a Hebrew word in 
Yiddish and there is no, let's say, German equivalent or pure Yiddish word. It's a Hebrew word just thrown in. So the song Zolshoin Kum and Degeula is really a hope for the Messiah, for the Mashiach to come. And it says, when you're dejected, you make a toast. When sorrow doesn't let you rest, we sing a song. If there's no whiskey, let's drink water. Fresh water is life itself. What else does a Jew need? And then it says, Zolshoin Kum and Degeula, may our salvation come. And then at the end, Mashiach. The Messiah will soon be here. So it's a very uplifting song because it starts saying there's some, you know, things in life that aren't so great. You should have pity on us that if the Messiah doesn't come right now, it will be a little late, but our salvation should come right now and trees are dancing in the forest and stars are dancing in heaven, etc. So it's a beautiful song that starts out a little slow and then it picks up and picks up and picks up to a joyous ending. Und gesollt euch von Herzen, macht mir alle Heil. Euch der Umetlosen nicht ruhen, singen mir alle. Ist nicht Tagen besser brauchen, lass mir trinken mein. Das Heim ist doch mein, was darf noch ein? Solch schöne kommende Gejula, solch schöne kommende Gejula, solch schöne kommende Gejula, Sich in der Mühe. 
That was by Cantor Isaac, and how's his last name pronounced? His name is Cantor Yitzchak Zrebker, Z-H like in Zhivago, so Cantor Yitzchak Zrebker. Well, we're out of time for today's Song of the Soul. We'll continue our visit with Cantor Howard Shalowitz next week. See you then. The theme music for Song of the Soul is by Chris Williamson, and it's called Song of the Soul. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and this is a Northern Spirit Radio production. You can listen to this program again, track down the list of songs included, and a whole lot more on my website, northernspiritradio.org. And I invite you to share your Song of the Soul with my listeners. Just contact me via my website. And please, join me weekly for Song of the Soul. You can 